Well, hello and welcome to the Wednesday Word, the Desert Spring Church podcast brought to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. My name is Julie Hart. I am the Director of Connectional Ministries. I'll be the host today. We're doing a storytelling series right now, and we're learning about people's stories, which has been quite interesting. And I'm excited that we have uh, someone pretty newish. Uh, to Desert Spring Church, uh, but but who's gotten real involved in in our recording studio? Um, we have Greg Todd. So Greg, uh, tell us uh, about how you got here. Well, where to begin? <laughs> See, I was born at no, never mind. <laughs> Started the beginning. Too far ago. <laughs> um, well, my son is a uh, Muay Thai boxer and uh, living in Brooklyn, New York and thought that he might have more opportunities in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. fight capital of the known universe. Yeah, capital of many things here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, entertainment capital, fight capital. So anyways, he moved out here about uh, probably uh, 2017 Mm -hmm. with his wife and um, became soon to be a father, and at which point... um, my wife got a call. I was like, gee, Mom, it'd be nice to have some help out here. Mm-hmm. So she says, no problem. Threw everything in the car and drove to Las Vegas. And for those of you listening, that is uh, the late Nellie. Nellie yeah, Bright. Nellie Todd. Bright. And so she moved out here and then within a year or less bought a condo mm-hmm. where she and my son Luke and his wife Maisha and um, daughter Nala lived and fast forward to november we're together on a uh, thanksgiving and with my family out in uh, new york yep she she flew out there she flew out there yep and uh we are traveling now down to her family's in southern illinois and incredibly tragically, she died of a massive heart attack yeah. two days after Thanksgiving. Just like that. She'd gone and done the whole family tour, seen high school friends. Is that right? Yeah. And, she, and... She'd been to visit her friends in Canton, New York, where she was living mm-hmm. prior to Las Vegas. Yeah. Down to be with my family. Uh-huh. And then her family. Wow. And then died. Unbelievable. It was shocking. Yeah. It was shocking. Yeah. You're the one that called and left a message on the church mailbox, and I'm the one that got that, and I kept listening to it because it just did not well, compute. Yeah. It didn't commute with me either when I woke up and her phone was ringing, you know, and uh, 5.30 in the morning, and I'm, why doesn't she pick the phone up? Only to find out she was lying on the floor dead from a heart attack. Oh, great. That was quite... <laughs> so... Um, Anyways, she um, left uh, her, her state to me, and I was executor, mm-hmm. and uh, moved out to Las Vegas and been living in her former condo with my son since uh, the beginning of December. But you really just came out for a few weeks to take care of some business, is is how this journey Yeah, I was just figured, well, you know, I'll just <laughs> sell the condo, sell the car, go back. Go, go, yeah. Then I ran into this thing called probate. Mm-hmm. It says, oh, we'll see you in April. Yeah, you said you'd be back. <laughs> yeah, and you were off you were going to go. And then... What happened? Uh, well, I mean, if I got... <laughs> I, I can't I can't sell the condo. I've got to continue to pay HOA mm-hmm. and mortgage on it. I had no place to live at that point in New York anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, 
logical thing to do. Just suffer through four months in Vegas. Suffer. Suffer pain. <laughs> Living in this nice warm weather instead of this yeah. dreary, snowy Brooklyn. Yeah. It has not so. been warm for us, but it's all relative. For you, it's a much much milder winter. Yeah, it's not freezing and snowing yeah, every right. day. So that's yeah. a good day. So I've been having a good time. Took up where Nellie left off at the church. You really did. You just you picked know, it right back just up. Got right back involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm. I, I'm really the Methodist in the family. She just was a graft. She yeah, that's what's interesting. I was baptized, confirmed, MYF, mm-hmm. the whole nine. Nice. And I was very active in my church in Brooklyn. And um, so for me, coming here was just uh, the natural thing to do. Yeah. And and really, you came here to make arrangements to have a service for her here. Right, right. Was, so we, was your purpose for coming to the church, right? We did. We had a memorial service for her, and I met many of her old and new friends. Yeah, which was uh, really cool because I loved, there was an open mic portion to it, and people just sharing. She was a colorful uh, person. <laughs> that's a colorful word, colorful. She was, she was colorful. That's I loved her for that, and uh, there were just really fun stories that that came out of just the the person that she was. So good job on that. Yeah, yeah. We also had a service for her back in her hometown, mm-hmm. and I met mm-hmm. some of her best friends from high school. Wow, wow. She was colorful in high school. I bet she was always. A, I saw the pictures. She was always colorful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was uh, never wanting interesting stories yeah, to tell. Yeah. So Well I want I do want to go back to, to you meeting her, but I want to continue on here with you. You came to the church to do the service and then you you just kinda of kept coming back. Right, because like I said, I'm a Methodist. I'm used to going to church. I've had mm-hmm. rarely missed a Methodist service going mm-hmm. back to my thirties, so to not go to church would be abnormal. And, mm-hmm. um, but I mean having Attended about uh, maybe six different Methodist churches in my life. This is totally unique. <laughs> it, it, it is. And like unique. the word colorful, unique covers a I, lot of ground. I go, I go with that. Unique. So tell us your experience for some someone coming from a whole different. Well, I mean, I'd never seen such an incredibly gifted uh, pianist. Oh wow! Yeah, um, Voltaire. You know, incredible, and having such a large choir. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went to the Valentine's dance with yeah. a thirty-piece band. I know, cool. I was up at camp. I missed that this year. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I took about a dozen videos of it, and I managed to get over three hundred hits on uh, Facebook. Oh my god! First time I ever gotten over three. Whoa! You almost went viral. <laughs> so, you know. Um, it's just, and the pastor, of course, is a gift. I mean, he has just this, I mean, I felt more like I was on a Donahue talk show sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's, it's just He's very, very personable, very warm, mm-hmm. very spontaneous, and it's very hard to throw him no matter what happens. He's like, well, mm-hmm. that just happened. Yeah, he's very cool that way, <laughs> you know? and, and he rolls with the punches, yeah. Yeah, yeah he doesn't... Uh, I can think of a lot of pastors just be like frozen deers in the mm-hmm. headlights for five minutes. Like, yeah. You know? Yeah, no, he just he keeps <laughs> just going. Like, yeah. You know. So, anyway, it's a lot of levels. Uh, you know, this it's just a large congregation. I mean, I church I had been going to previously in Brooklyn, we had, I think twelve people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? that this is a totally different. You kind know, of and that before that, we were looking at maybe 
70 or 80 on a service, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then they've got so many programs. Yeah, so tell us about some of the programs that you've gotten involved in. Well, I'm also a very active gardener. Yeah. And then I've heard that you had a relationship with the Zion Methodist Church. Yeah, the community garden. Which I went to the very active youth group out there with and found this, by Brooklyn standards, huge garden. Yeah. I think he told me they had 68 beds there. Wow. Which is probably the combined total of all the gardens in Brooklyn. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. So, and uh, just very cool. I mean, the Zion Methodist Church, the sanctuary, burned down in a fire. Yeah. And a number of years ago. Yeah. And has never been rebuilt, nope. but instead they have this giant garden. Yeah, which you know. which existed not to the degree it was, but before it, the church burnt down, it was something they had already started. And it's so cool that they have kept that going. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really uh, a very uh, active uh, garden, and um, but then I've also gotten involved with another garden here. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Which is the um, San Miguel Community Garden. Okay. And uh, almost as big as the one at Zion Methodist, I cool. would say. Um, and very active. But interestingly, the entire board I discovered uh, for the garden are uh, members of the Latter-day. Oh, Saints, yeah. The Saints. LDS Mormon. Yeah. Yet only one of the gardeners I met was. Everyone else is just... Uh, which is something unique I've discovered cool. about Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, I feel kind of almost like a, I, I, when I first arrived here, my thought of Vegas was a town with no past and no future. <laughs> oh, fascinating. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a very new town, as we know, certainly yeah. coming from New York City, which is the 1600s, you know. Yeah, right. Town that was uh, birth in 1905, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it's just grown like, Oh, crazy! It's amazing, and it just yeah. keeps morphing. It, it does. I I I moved here in '87, about the time that they just were blowing up casinos and building bigger ones. It was like every other Tuesday they're like imploding something, and it's a very different town than yeah. Yeah, than I got yeah. Here. It's just uh, you know, but it makes itself up as it goes along. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it started out as a, a free flowing spring, and then so many people arrived, but within a matter of Ten years, the springs are all dried up because they were all depleted. Now they were drilling wells, and now the drills of wells are drying up. So what do they do? Well, gee, there's a big river bear. Let's build a dam. Yeah. <laughs> 1930s, yeah. Henderson, the yep. whole enchilada. Now they've got water and in the hydro for electric. Yeah. And uh, so every time they run into a wall, they just figure to go through it, around it, or somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. We keep keep recreating ourselves. So the town just has that vibe. It's like, well, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know. And during the pandemic, there, you know, people there was a lot of talk that like that's the end of Las Vegas because it's a, you know, it's a yeah. hospitality and a, you know, events. But it's it's been amazing to see how it's rebuilt. You brought up water, and I do know that you are a volunteer. You've already gotten yourself involved with Springs Preserve. Yeah. And yeah. so, what is it that you do there? Well, I, like Nellie, had a colorful life, and mm. I always tried to keep up with her. I never quite did it. but I <laughs> Who could? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I started, a, co-founded a community garden in Brooklyn in 2007 in an abandoned uh, garden site. And then, um, what was it, 2014, in the middle of the garden, this little 
falling down house, which is the only house left on the whole block. It used to be a fill of filled houses. They were all torn down by urban renewal. Only one left came on the market. And at that point, I was selling my house. I was like, well, gee, what if I were to buy that one? Really? So I did. Yeah, for a ridiculous amount of money. Oh, my gosh. And um, proceeded to try to build a new house, literally in the middle of the garden. It was like garden on both sides, house in the middle. And because I was very into this whole energy efficiency thing, tried to build a super energy efficient house. And after six years of nightmarish struggles and so on, I finally was forced to sell the half-finished house. Oh, darn. Um, Still incompleted, but still dreaming of energy efficiency. Okay. And I come out to Springs Preserve, and for those of you who've been there, this thing called Desert Sol, which was a house built by the UNLV students 10 years ago for an energy efficiency competition. Yeah. And placed second in the world. Yeah. The only school from the U.S. in the top three. Anyways, after it was finished, they brought it out here to Desert Springs. And yeah. now I can pretend it's my house. Ah, there you go. I finally, finally get got your my house. energy house. <laughs> and I welcome people twice a week to come into my energy house and oh, let me explain beautiful. to them all the stuff that I built there. You know, we need to do a field trip when you're... We, you do, I would love to take the kids we, out there. Yeah, we're going to set up a field trip for real Yeah, on a Sunday. Yeah, that I would mean, be the coolest I get so wound up just yeah. getting off on all the end. And there's so many things in this house that just, and I keep saying, so how come every house in Las Vegas isn't like this? You live in a desert, mm-hmm. you know, you're running out of water, mm-hmm. you know, you have this abundant sun. Mm-hmm. You should make houses like this. They're net zero. They capture water off the roof. They have mm-hmm. water storage tanks. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Seriously, we're gonna do a field trip. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna yeah, come I'll come here. Your chew their ears off. That'd I'll be, be awesome. Like, yeah. They'll be. Like, no, we have to leave now. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you Don't won't look go. at this. Look at that. This, this other thing. You didn't see this. You did you that. It's, yeah. Cool. It, it's just like, uh, I get so wound up out there. It's, yeah. yeah. It's a very cool. That's awesome. That's a great way to serve. Um. So one of the things that you're involved in is, um. We, I am leading a workshop by remembering your story, capturing your, your story workshop that's, that we meet every couple of weeks and been going through this book. Um, actually it's remembering your story, creating your own spiritual autobiography by Richard Morgan. And so you joined our group and that's a, that's a, a interesting group, a, a diverse group of people there. Um, and, um, so we're starting to capture that. So, uh, one of the things that we started with was um, our childhood, you know, and even going back to drawing our our homes, our childhood homes, and kind of thinking through those through those things. And so, um, tell tell us a little bit about this journey of uh, thinking through your childhood, and and you know what realizations you may have come to, or just what memories you've captured, or that journey for you. Yeah, it's, it's the author points out. Um... Our generation is one of the very first in human history where there is this total disconnect in the family. I mean, everybody just takes off. You know, like my brother's in California. I'm in Brooklyn. My parents um, spent their last 20 years in Michigan where I grew up. We, mm-hmm. I left when I was 27. So we don't have that family connection. And, uh, you know, historically up until just the last 50 years or so, 
people lived in multi-generational yeah. families. And yep. there was always a grandparent there to tell mm-hmm. the stories of their ancestors. And everyone sat around the dinner table and listened to Aunt so-and-so mm-hmm. talk about Uncle so-and-so yeah. and so on and so forth. And we've just, that's disappeared, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that whole legacy of storytelling and being connected with our ancestors in the sense of our own intergenerational yeah. um, history is, is getting lost. You know? Yeah, it truly is. And so this you know, book really caused me to reflect because I still you know, grew up in Michigan visiting my grandparents at least once a month on both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. My parents met in uh, first grade. And they were mm-hmm. married like uh, over 65 years. Wow. And uh, they grew up, you know, two miles apart. And uh, mm. so their families are very Sweet. intertwined. And we would go back at least once a month and hang out with both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. So I got to know my grandparents quite right. well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, – and my, my mother was always very uh, – intent on keeping the family together and every at least twice a year she insists that we all get together for you know christmas and then in the spring we would summer Mm. we would go and rent a a place somewhere Mm. and spend like a week together oh i love that the cousins and the whole my my brother and his kids and myself and my kids and my parents and we'd all get together and spend a week together every year And God forbid you should say, my mother, you're not coming. You no, know, you will be there. You would never live uh, it down. Uh, it was like, you know, kind of a thing. So, you know, I bless her for that, you know. And But my brother and I are not that close. And, I, mm. you know, I haven't seen him. I see him maybe every two or three or four years. Oh, wow. You know. That's hard. And, um so it's just these these the stories now that people hear are more likely to come from some podcast on Instagram or something mm-hmm. than they are on you know your own family. Mm-hmm. Not sitting around the table. Yeah. So there's this kind of sense of connection that mm-hmm. our our um, ancestors mm-hmm. that is so integral in the Bible. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the Bible is nothing but, I mean. It's all about power, really, that had come from the stories and mm-hmm. the sense of identity and a sense of awareness and those codes, the Ten Commandments. These are our rules to live by Yeah, that came out of stories. Yeah, told by, stories you know, are important. Isaac and by... Abraham mm-hmm. and Jesus and Moses and mm-hmm. all that, all of those stories mm-hmm. give you a sense of who we are and what our rules are and how we live and what we value mm-hmm. and what we don't value. Yeah. And, you know, I just sense that in this generation we're in some morality and make things up. Yeah. <laughs> we'll wig it to see what happens. Yeah. The, this kind of uh, spontaneous morality that spontaneous you know, morality d- d- that develops the, the yeah. situation, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know? And part of that's the loss of connection. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have these stories that give us a sense of identity and our roots and who mm-hmm. we are and mm-hmm. how we're supposed to live and, you know... Um, we have these role models that are in our family history that uh, mm-hmm. tell us who we are. And then, of course, conversely, what happens when you don't do that? Mm-hmm. There's uncle this and aunt that. Right. You, well, know, everyone's got you don't want to be like them because <laughs> you know what happened to them. Always and, one uncle in the family. <laughs> there's, there's always uh, 
that's yeah, funny. some bad actor. And uh, <laughs> so you remember what happened to Uncle Mort yeah, when he tried yeah, that? Well, yeah, it didn't yeah. work out too well. So, you know, so all of that stuff that really drives the, the Bible and our faith as Christians, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need to re- reflect on the fact that their attendance at most churches has been declining for decades. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, the stories. Yeah, and the being, stories, mm-hmm. the, the truth of the Bible and the sense of. Uh, who we are as human beings mm-hmm. just seems to be kind of uh, being invented, uh, you know. And in a sense, it's not a bad thing because the reality of the human race is kind of dangling by a thread. And if we don't change radically, if we don't develop new stories to fit a new reality, we may not make it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the thing I keep reflecting on and I keep trying to get Methodists to, to reflect on is that the reality that our ancestors faced was really relevant up until the 1950s. And then change set in mm-hmm. of such a magnitude and such a pervasive, uh, really life-ending quality that we really have to reinvent ourselves. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it's not an accident the Lord has taken away these stories from us and says, all right, Oh, interesting. We have to reinvent who we are because what we are got us to where we're at now, which is kind of a, basically a situation the six math extinction, and among those six species extinct, it could well be us. Well, and the story is, uh, I mean, there are a lot of stories of the Bible that, you know, we, we, get it, we got it wrong, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Have to start over again, like, mess that up, you know? Yeah, this idea yeah. of domination of, of humans being the center of the universe and mm-hmm. that everything we want is the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. It worked for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not working so great we anymore, were, right? We were so damn good at it. Yeah, right. That, right. Uh, you know, we basically um, set up a situation where we can't go on like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that reality is getting more real every minute. So then with all that in mind and with you trying to capture your story, what's important for you to pass down to, you know, your children, grandchildren? What are, what are the pieces of your story that you want to make sure um, in your family's story that, that, they, that they know and understand? What do you want to leave them with? Well, I mean, I think that uh, I really want to leave them with a sense that um, we can't be passive. You know, that everything that's going on around us is a result of someone else doing something to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And we can't just accept that as um, necessary or even uh, helpful, mm-hmm. that we have to take responsibility. And if something's wrong, if something isn't working, if something's violating what's just and what's fair, that we need to take charge and deal with it mm-hmm. not just even though we're not actively doing it if we're inactive in that we're like, yeah we're allowing to, it to, to, to passively allow it to happen is to basically acknowledge that it's okay mm-hmm. and it's not okay so much of that going on right now yeah everybody's like well nothing i can do you know just zone out with a, a game on the internet and mm-hmm. you know then roll up the curtains, turn off the lights when it's over. It's, yeah, that seems yeah. to be True. captures the way a lot of people think. There's this powerlessness that these huge forces at work. There's billionaires pulling the strings. Nothing we can do, and the game over. And let's just you know, ride it till it's mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a window where we can turn this around, but we can't do it by checking out. We've got to basically check in. 
Mm-hmm. And I think more and more people are waking up to that reality. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the shifts I see in the uh, government and the politics are starting to react to that, both positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. Some people are just becoming incredibly angry and just want to act out mm-hmm. and do stupid things. And mm-hmm. other people are saying, you know, we've got to fix this. We've yeah. got to be responsible. We can't yeah. allow this to be delegated to people who are not people that work for us. Right. <laughs> We've got right. to get people who do work for us. Right. Well, and, and so I think that you're right about that. And I think um, the things that we're passionate about, you know, it's it's sometimes hard for people to take their passion, um, you know, the things that have been put on our hearts and to put them into action. So what are some examples that you can say in your own life that you were passionate about and you took, I mean, I know the garden for sure is something that, um, but, but where are some places that you've been that example for, you know, the people in your life? Yeah, well, I got so into gardening that um, in June of last year, I uh, left New York City for the first time in 45 years and moved up to an organic farm in the far up reaches of New York State. Yeah. And spent five months on my hands and knees hoeing, weeding, hauling, carrying <laughs> at age 73 oh in my the gosh. boiling sun. What, what, how did that happen? Well, it just, and again, serendipity, or so it seems. I was uh, looking for a place to move. I couldn't stay in New York City anymore. I retired, living on fixed income. Rents were astronomical. I had a son living in the far-up state of Canton in New York. Okay. Needed a place to stay. And I remember this this 50-year-old intentional community, i.e. hippie commune, if you Love will, it. called Birdswood Farm. Birthwood Farm. And I went to their website, and they, oh, we're looking for a farm manager. I'm like, well... Heck. Wow. <laughs> Let me call him up. Sweet. So I called him up, and the woman who run it, who herself was a German, who moved here when she was in her 20s, okay. running the farm for like 30 years. Wow. She was like, uh, really? You're how old again? And what do you want to do? That's amazing. Well, let me think about that. Yeah. Didn't hear from her for like three weeks. I figured, uh-huh. well, she probably had more sense than I did. <laughs> and then she calls me back and says, can you be up here next week? And I'm like, uh, sure, I can move everything I own in a car and be up there. Seriously. <laughs> so. And you did. I did. Put whatever you had in a car. Uh, How did you even do that, first of I all? I just uh, didn't have much at that point. Wow. I've been liquidating stuff for like eight years. Good for you. And down to just a few things. And um, what did I do? I rented a car, actually. I didn't own a car, being wow. a Brooklynite. Yeah, right. And I uh, rented a car, drove everything up there, dropped it off, took the car back, had my bike. Somehow thought I was going to ride a bike around in the North Country. That lasted okay. about four weeks until yeah. I bought a car. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but uh, so I just was just uh, winging it. And uh, incredible. They had their 50th re- reunion of the intentional uh, community. In August, I was there. I met, you know, probably 150 people, including the founder, a guy named Doug Jones, who had graduated the same year I did, 1972, from Harvard. Brought a bunch of his hippie friends up there, bought this piece of land for cheapets. Wow. And went back to the land. And then they all left within two years, as usually happens. And he stayed on. As things go, yeah. Another 25 years. 
kept it alive. Wow. And uh, he was still at his age down in Virginia starting another farm. Wow. <laughs> uh, wow. Incredible guy. Incredible. A real saint. Yeah. I mean, a man, selfless individual, you know, wow. and very caring and uh, loving guy. And uh, so I get, got to do all this because I respond to an ad on the Internet. <laughs> well, and tell us about that experience. Well, I mean, it was... Uh, very uh, challenging. I had been reading a lot and been doing a lot in this community garden, uh, thinking about putting uh, resources back in the soil, and had a lot of ideas about that based on all these books I'd read and my experiences in the community garden. Yeah. And immediately ran into this very hard-headed German woman who'd been doing it for 40 years. And yep, the idea same of some way. knucklehead coming in from Brooklyn right, right, right. telling her how to garden didn't settle too well no, with her. I can imagine that. So we had a few um, run-ins. But I think she respected that I was passionate about this and, you know, yeah. with some good intentions. And... Um, we eventually ended up writing a grant together uh, to get funding to do some experimental work, which in the end didn't get funded. But she just was so stressed out by the whole process. Um, shortly after the grant was submitted, she withdrew from the grant. It just oh. kind of, I think, a lot of pressure from her husband because she was she's worked twelve hour days. Yeah. And he never saw her, and the idea of her working 14-hour days. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> didn't right. settle too well. So anyways, it's a work in progress, mm-hmm. and I still hope to go back there. So that is your plan, to go yeah, back, Yeah, even though I like to say that you live here now. Yeah, yeah. I uh, have too much passion around this organic gardening thing. And honestly, the way things are going, the idea of living in a city, you know, with all these crazy dislocations and inflation and shortage of this, that, and the other things and the mm-hmm. droughts and the chaos and the confusion. Living close to land, to mm-hmm. me, seems like a good idea. Okay, you know? yeah, I can respect and that. I would encourage I you all that. to think about it. Yeah, I can respect that. <laughs> Learn how yeah. to grow something. Yeah, you know, well, I come from a line, my, my grandparents were farmers. They were hay farmers, and my brother worked that and the potato farm in, from Idaho. You yeah. know, my family's from Idaho, so... Yeah. yeah, but uh, you're you're right. It's I do I try to grow things out here, but really what I have is a garden in my backyard that my mom comes over every day and takes care of for me. Well, you're you're nurturing a crop of people. At that's church it. Here, that's so it. I that's, can water uh, people better than plants. But uh, Pastor David's a gardener. He that's where he gets his uh, peace. Yeah, he I told think. me he was involved with the community down in Arizona, I believe. Yeah. Before he yeah. was a pastor. Yeah. So yeah. he plans to go back. I think he has some land in Idaho somewhere. Uh, in Utah. Utah. By, yeah, by Zion. Like mm-hmm. looking, looking. Yeah, real right there. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I okay. So that's cool. So you have been a good example, and um, for your children in in being passionate about and and be taking action, uh, for things. Um, yeah, and yeah. that was taught to you as a child. Would you say? Well, I, I really trace my lineage back to my father's side of the family more than my mother's. My grandfather um, was quite a, a character, to put it mildly, in a, both a good and bad way. But he was um, always incredibly opinionated and, and strong mm-hmm. kind of guy. He built the house he lived in. He built several other houses up there. Mm-hmm. His um, birth name was Clarence Bradley. Clarence, okay. But n- he 
never went by either name. He was known universally in the community as CB. Okay. CB. And everybody knew you never saw CB. (laughs) (laughs) He was a big guy, you know, Mm -hmm. at the time. He was over six feet. Okay. About 180. Mm -hmm. And um, my first remembrance of him was sitting on the porch of uh, the farm that he built this beautiful big house in the middle of a farm with big two big barns, built them all himself, and he was sitting there with two of the cronies and me, like a five-year-old, and he was going on about that damn FDR, you know? <laughs> and I swear, I walked away as a kid like, my God, my grandfather knows the president. <laughs> oh, my God. And he would go on and on about this stuff. I had no idea. He was all, and all his two buddies just said, yep, yep, you know, you're right, CB. You tell him, CB. That's great. That's I, great. You know, he was, uh, my family, he was uh, known to be somebody who just, you know, you didn't want to mess with, you mm-hmm. know, because he didn't. But he got stuff done. He got stuff done, and mm-hmm. he was a contractor, and I would not want to be a subcontractor because he would probably, <laughs> if you didn't do, he would probably yeah. come looking for you. There you go. Kind of a guy. But anyway, see, eventually... Um, I had a, uh, this beautiful house he built on a hill, looked out over a nice lake, and he owned frontage, about maybe 150 feet of frontage on the lake. And all of his uh, three daughters and sons, son, my father, uh, were all lined up thinking when he tied away, they passed away, they would all get a piece of that frontage to build their summer home on. Oh, okay. Well, that typical CB. He wasn't about to do that, you know. He he basically deeded the whole thing over to the county, and made it a um, what do you call it? A uh, landing for anyone who wants to bring their boat into the oh, lake. Oh, okay. So he figured it was right for people to have access to the okay. lake, not just the rich folks. Okay. So everybody got land, and he got a, a dying view of the lake from his. Interesting, interesting. (laughs) To this day, like the family still hates them. They're bitter. They're probably bitter about that, but they're. It did bother him a bit. He's like, well, that's what I wanted. That's what he did. There you go. The story. That's that's great. So one of the exercises we did in our book was uh, kind of the bubble up and bubble downs of our timelines, and we did the the highlights, the high points, the you know celebrations that stand out, and then the the struggles and the low points. What are a couple that stand out for you? That, that kind of impacted your life long term? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had, uh, like a lot of folks, uh, when I was in college, did, you know, didn't go to church. And then I ended up marrying a woman I met in uh, graduate school who was Jewish. And I was actually um, married by a rabbi mm. and took a six-month uh, catechism in the Jewish faith. Oh, yeah, okay. So I got a good knowledge and, of course, hanging with her family, which is sure. very close. yeah. So I was made an honorary Jewish person. There you go. Interesting. You know? Interesting. Yeah. But then it all ended up with a divorce. Uh-huh. And I was kind of like lost adrift in the sea of life. And um, But I had not good recollections of the Methodist Church. Um, just being because it was tradition-bound and conservative and conventional. And I wasn't anything like that. None of those things. Okay. So I'm like, I'm going to find myself another church. So I went to the Baptist church. I went to Lutheran church. I went to a congregational church. Uh-huh. And I'm walking back from the, what was it, the Reformed church. Uh-huh. I happened to walk by the only Methodist church around. 
And there was like all these people engaged in these really passionate discussions at coffee hour out in the church garden. Yeah. I'm like, wow, what are these people into? They really seem to be excited about something. Cool. So I said, well, it gets my better judgment. I went back next Sunday to the Methodist church. Okay. And they had this complete wingnut of a pastor. <laughs> I mean, he was hair down to his shoulders, full beard. They sang shalom at the end of the service. Wow. They had a sh- passing of the sharing of joys and sorrows that went on for like 30 minutes. It was like a, a <laughs> meeting. Everybody was up there confessing their worst oh, crimes. No. I'm like, this no. is not a Methodist church. No. <laughs> and thank no. God, because I'm not going to. I'm going to go to this church. <laughs> wow. And the pastor and I became best friends. Yeah. And he talked more about Descartes than he did Luke in the, the Bible. I mean, mm. he was just... Interesting. Completely unconventional. Yeah. Passionate social activists. It just, we really vibed. I was a chair of the finance committee, the mm-hmm. social action committee. Yeah. The staff parish relations, mm-hmm. I, you know. And the social action is important to you. Yeah, they had a social action committee in this church, incredibly. Yeah. yeah. And I was the chair of that for a couple of years. And uh, we got our local council member to come to our meetings. And uh, yeah. We what did. were the issues that Well, the that issues time? we were trying to get um, funding for the schools. Mm. So we um, did a lot of work around school okay. stuff. Okay. At the time, you know. So now, if you decide to stick around a little longer, what you know, or maybe uh, Nevadans for the Common Good is something you should connect you with. Uh, yeah. Because they're, they're about the social action, and they connect the churches with that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that certainly I've encountered a few situations i'd like to fix here in nevada yeah i bet you have i'm like no 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 i can't do that i gotta you know because i just get sucked into these things and, uh, <laughs> i'm just trying to suck you in further yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and I get, don't, julie's not helping them <laughs> i know i can't say that you're living here yeah. um okay so i want to go to another exercise or another section of the book that um we uh we just barely grazed on in our last uh but it's coming up it's talking about family secrets mm-hmm. uh you know and we all have them you know and when you sit in and, it, and at your age 70 something here now mm-hmm. um you you look back with a different perspective and so what 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 did you experience in thinking through that for yourself well, I have uh, in my wife, my mother's side of the family, um, she was one of three sisters. Mm-hmm. And she, her dying breath, literally hated her older sister because her older sister was a tyrant. Mm-hmm. And um, they used to refer to her kindly in the family as the field marshal. <laughs> she nice. Okay. Got, gotcha. And my mother was so angry about being stepped on, bullied, and harassed by her older sister mm-hmm. that she just spent her whole life trying to get even with her. Wow. <laughs> wow. And he doing everything. But I, I say that all to say that there was another sister who was like seven years younger than my mother, uh, Alice. And Alice was the family rebel, of course, mm-hmm. as a younger kids often are Mm -hmm. and uh, she just did everything to be different and not to conform and she ended up getting divorced and remarried and uh, he died her husband died and she was on her own for the last 30 years Mm -hmm. and she just did every weird thing she became a clown 
and you know danced in parades and clown costumes and mm-hmm. and did uh, all kinds of genealogy stuff and digging in the family history and this is incredible but my mother well my father's off in the war used to go to these USO uh, social events mm-hmm. in Fort Wayne Indiana okay and just so puzzled because the only people who would ever ask her to dance were Jewish guys. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to New York and I looked at some of my mother's early pictures, she looked totally Jewish. Oh. Of her three sisters, she looked, couldn't be more Jewish. Her complexion, her hair, oh. her facial, everything was Jewish. Okay. So I'm like, darn, what is that about? Well, wow. my aunt and her poking around, came up with this crazy story. Apparently the father's family had come from somewhere in Maryland, and they were Jewish. And someone in their family had committed such a heinous crime in the Jewish community that they were no longer permitted to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. Oh. And it was just generational stigma that just... Oh. So at some point... My grandfather's ancestors decided to heck with this. Just moved to Midwest, like a lot of people, and just reinvented themselves. Kept the same name, which was Weisner. Uh, uh-huh. Good Jewish name. Yeah, it's pretty. But they spelled it W-I-S-N-E-R, not okay. W-E-I-S-N-E-R. Yeah. But they pronounced it Weisner, not Wisner, which is the proper pronunciation. There, uh-huh. was, there was a Governor Wisner of Michigan. Yeah. Okay. But they... Stuck to the old pronunciation. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> and truly, my grandfather lived a very Jewish life. He was a school teacher. He was yeah. a, a businessman. He was a real estate broker. He bought wow. and sold things. I mean, he couldn't have been more Jewish. He lived uh-huh. the way he wow. lived his life. And I know that's because I was married to a Jewish person. And yeah. I, you know, I got to know Jewish people quite well. And so, this is the story. And how old were you when you learned this? Oh, I probably was my 50s. That's wild. It was my aunt, no one else. And That's then ever my mother's like, oh, it's not true. Oh, it's not true. Yeah, no one wanted to, to uh, wow. fess up about this. But uh, so that explains to me at least why my mother looks so Jewish. Yeah. You know? That's interesting. And uh, so that was the story. Yeah. That, uh, and so that's now that's become a part of your story. So, yeah, how does that fit in for you? Well, I mean, it's just ironic that I ended up marrying a Jewish woman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I really don't. But that side of the family, was, I was never that identified with. My grandfather uh, um, was very different than my, my mother's father, very different than my father's father. He was just a very kindly, sweet individual. Mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, having him uh, sit me on his lap and reading the Bible to me mm-hmm. in his favorite chair mm, for sweet. hours on end, you know, sweet. just like all these great Bible stories. And he just sweet. the other story I think I told at the uh, meeting last week about uh, he just loved to play with the kids, and he was a kid himself. And mm-hmm. parents left us alone with him, my brother and I, to babysit us while they were running errands. Came back. He had locked himself in the bathroom, and somehow we got a hold of a hammer. We're pounding on the wooden door with the hammer. 
Oh, wow. My mother was so mad at him. You know? Wow. <laughs> he was just He just laughed. He thought it was so funny. Oh. <laughs> wow. So, you know, very different than my father's father, who was like everybody was scared to death of him. You know, cause mm-hmm. He was just one of these guys who didn't take hostages. And <laughs> he didn't tolerate anybody, you know, yeah. crossing him. So... Uh, I tend to follow more closely to my father's side, you know, which has been my, you know, curse of my life. I've been fired from so many jobs because I just wouldn't shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I would have put up. (laughs) Well, and tell us about your career, your 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 work life. Well, I mean, yeah, I um, ended up going to business school at the University of Michigan. Grew up in Michigan and got an MBA. Um, I had originally tended to be a doctor, but I'd got really crappy scores. And I'm like, I had to go to some third world medical school. I'm like, eh, I'm not doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So I was going to be a hospital administrator, but Michigan, incredibly difficult to get into. So I said, what the heck, I'll be an administrator or something else. I'll be a business administrator. I got an MBA. Okay. After six weeks there, I realized I hated business people. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I can't picture that right now, but. <laughs> I'm like, I kept trying to talk to them about social issues and yeah. they're looking, looking like, who cares? How much does it pay? But I didn't, I got it. I, would, I just wouldn't quit. Went on, got my MBA. And rather than taking a job with a big corporation, like all my other MBAs, you know, making a lot of money, la la la. I specifically got a job at a medium sized bank in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. With the thought in the back of my head, it's like, you know, a nice size bank like this in the community should be able to do some good, you know? Mm-hmm. There should be a community mindedness in the bank. Mm-hmm. So after like nine months at the bank, I went in a, in a training program. They asked me, well, what would you like to do? I says, well, I'd like to set up a community benefit fund so we could build affordable housing. <laughs> they looked at me like, like they're talking to a Martian. It's like, you know, that's very funny. Well, what do you really want to do? Yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I want to do. Wow. So they punished me by putting me in the uh, um, commercial lending division looking at spreadsheets of that's bad loans. excruciating. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah, down in the basement of the bank. Oh, you know, my gosh. Locked up with the spreadsheets. Oh, jeez. That's and eventually got fired because, you know, they just couldn't figure out where to put me. Yeah. And the irony of ironies, that was 1975. And in 1975, the U.S. Congress passed what they called the Community Reinvestment Act, which forced every bank to basically create a fund to reinvest in the community. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't do it, they wouldn't get certified as a bank by mm-hmm. the federal government. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> called yeah. the Community CRA, okay. Community Reinvestment Act. I didn't even know about it at the time. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. But, uh, you know, I guess I got the laugh last, sort of. In a <laughs> They're like, where is that guy from the basement? Yeah, hey, where, we what, want what, him back. Somebody want to do this. <laughs> yeah. So I fed up with Michigan. My wife, my Jewish wife at the time, didn't really care for Kalamazoo. Uh-huh. Um, she was from Boston. I didn't really want to live with her family, so we moved to New York. Okay. And she wanted to get into publishing. I wanted to get into advertising. I ended up working for a publisher. She ended up working for Time Magazine. Wow. Became the executive assistant to the editor of the Time Magazine. For wow. Six. 
and uh, she was a brilliant, brilliant lady, but um, could never make a decision and talk about having kids scared the hell out of her. Okay. So eventually she left. Okay. And I was left to my own devices. Mm-hmm. I ended up washing on the beach of the Methodist church with my crazy radical Methodist commie <laughs> pastor. And, right. And uh, true to his bent, he found this um, highly skilled community organizer who had just been fired from his congregation or his community group in Queens, New York, handing out flyers on the subway. And he says, look, let me help you out. So he hooked him up with all his um, church friends, ended up starting a uh, community empowerment organization mm-hmm. called Brooklyn Ecumenical Cooperatives. I like all of that. This crazy guy, his name was Dick Harmon, had been the chief trainer for Saul Alinsky, who basically invented grassroots organizing, wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. Oh, wow. Crazy guy in University of Chicago. And this guy, Dick Harmon, had spent 20 years in the slaughterhouses of the south side of Chicago organizing. Came up to Brooklyn, started this group, and they eventually started a housing group. And I twisted Dick's arm, and he hired me as the first employee of this group that basically taking vacant abandoned buildings in bad neighborhoods and turned them into affordable housing. Wow. And with no experience, I got hired as the guy who was going to sell these houses. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so that's what I did for the next 15 years. I worked um, basically selling renovated abandoned hmm. buildings in places like Bedford-Stuyvesant, North Crown Heights. Interesting. All over Brooklyn. Wow. You know, I was like the only white guy in the room in these black neighborhoods saying, hey, wouldn't you like to buy a house in this wow. crappy neighborhood? And they look at me like, what the hell do you know about it? But but that was meaningful work for you. <laughs> yeah. I totally dug it. I mean, for me, it was really... Something uh, you had passion for. Yeah. I, uh, totally loved it. And uh, eventually ended up buying a house in North Crown Heights, which is a mm-hmm. predominantly uh, Caribbean neighborhood. Oh, Okay. And most of the homeowners had bought houses in the 50s and the 60s and were from somewhere in the Caribbean. Oh, interesting. And uh, yeah. gotten into the community board and got very involved in local politics and uh, so on and so forth. Wow. And then eventually when that organization collapsed because of a certain mayor named Giuliani mm-hmm. <laughs> who defunded all the nonprofits and oh. gave all the properties to the for-profits, okay. ended up becoming a real estate broker. And started writing my own newsletter about community stuff. And I was told by, I worked for a group called the Corcoran Group, which was founded by none other than Barbara Corcoran. Okay. And at the time, it was the largest real estate brokerage in New York City. Okay. And uh, But I was the only one in the company with like 1,500 brokers, the only one who did his own newsletter. And I was putting it out every three months the first few editions were like eight pages, mm-hmm. just chock full of stories about what's going on in the community, cool. and this, that, and the other thing. And it was very successful because mm-hmm. no one was doing it, and I seemed to have a lot of people interested in what I was writing about and got a lot of listings. So you can also you can be a businessman and still be a good idealist. balance. You found a balance there because you care about you do care about communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
That's so, that's a great balance. It was a, because of I like the fact that being a real estate broker, they can't tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're an independent broker. Yeah. And um, so I just uh, did my thing. Wow. And no one else had any clue what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> but I did it, and it worked. Yeah, good for you. You know, and then I started the community garden. I took a course in permaculture and uh, started a uh, bike carting and composting business. I started a landscaping business. Wow, you've done so <laughs> many things. Yeah, so I just had a hell of a good time. You good know? for you, good for you. Well, we didn't get to the part about um, Nellie when Nellie came into the scene, for those of us who uh, knew and loved Nellie so. Well, I ended up, um, after divorce, buying a co-op in a very fringy neighborhood, and only intrepid people would live there. And the only other person from uh, at the time who had bought was Nellie, mm. a truly intrepid person. So the two of us were like, <laughs> oh, what's your deal? You know? and, uh, oh, wow. So I spent the next uh, year and a half walking up and down the stairs between her co-op on the first floor and mine on the third floor. Yeah. You know, and eventually got married by that same crazy radical Methodist mm-hmm. minister. Yeah. And um, I remember... Uh, the song we sang, one of the songs we sang uh, was um, a song called um, Hard-Headed Woman. Do you remember that? Uh, I sure do. From Tea and the Tiller Man. <laughs> I sure do. And uh, that was Nellie. She was hard-headed. You know? Yep. Yeah. And one of the few people I knew that would tell me when to sit down and when to shut up mm-hmm. faster than she, anyone else. She was, She <laughs> again, I say she was a colorful, colorful, fun person. Yeah, you know. And uh, I spent most of the next 30 years following her around, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> she just would go off and do stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. That's awesome. I want to do that, too. And I'd do it. And she's like, oh, I'm bored with that. She's going to do Moving something else. On. And I'm still like, hey, I'm having a great time here. Where are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm over here doing this. I can totally over, oh, that's cool. That. I could do that, you know. <laughs> and then in 2007, she, you know, our kids were like, you know, probably 16 and 18 she's like well get done with raising the kids time to do something else <laughs> so she, i'm through with this yeah that's over so what does she do she buys a hunting cabin in the middle of the adirondacks in the middle of the winter <laughs> with no running water um no electricity wow and uh lives there for six months <laughs> Just as soon as she I, could. That's not even a surprise. That's not even a surprise at all. And she's like, oh, that sucks. So she moves into town and buys a house and then another house and another house, you know. Wow. <laughs> and then eventually lures son, my son Paul up there to go to school. And uh, she lives with him um, or he with her for some five years. Until she gets a call from my other son, Luke, mm-hmm. who just had the first kid in yeah. Vegas. And then she's like, and walks in the next day to my son, Paul. I was like, well, I'm moving to Vegas. Here's the keys of the house that's yours, <laughs> along with the two other properties I own. So Nellie. <laughs> it took off. <laughs> wow. And everything she had in her car. No moving band Again, required. You guys are just the... fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 uh, but what a journey that must have been, you know, following Nellie around. That's a book in itself. Yeah. So then I moved to Canton, mm-hmm. right, and uh, 
to be close to Paul, and then of course, then moved to Las Vegas. So I just spent the like fall and valley around, went to Canton, went to Vegas. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she was also a, a passionate person, also. So yeah, yeah, she uh, she just uh, loved what she loved, and mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't anyone who uh, you know would kowtow to anyone. She was like passionate about her art, mm-hmm. and. Um, but despite, you know, like many artists, unlike many artists, she wasn't also a very good bookkeeper and very organized. And I really appreciate that when she passed because I came out here, all of her ducks were in a row. Everything was in order. She had done a will. Um, her car was flurry and clear. The condo was, you know, had a very small mortgage. Um, all of her documents were together. Good for know. her. And... Um, Good for her. So, you know, she was uh, just a one of a kind. Yeah. And yeah. It, uh, always up to something. Yeah. In the yeah. short time I knew her, I, I was just, yeah, you want to be around, sit next to Nellie, you yeah. know, <laughs> which, yeah, she's a. a she's honest and irre- irreverent. And, uh, yeah. 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 And <laughs> most of the stories I cannot actually share <laughs> my Nellie stories, but they always made me smile. She did some crazy things. As you can well imagine, I could talk another hour about the yeah. crazies, you know. She, yeah. she lived in Paris for five years yeah. with a Moroccan architect. Yeah. She got a job working on Wall Street and went from receptionist to top salesperson in like yeah. five years. And, I can believe it. You know, and yeah. uh, then uh, got tired of that and, you know, just moved on. Did whatever she knew how to do. And yeah, she wrote new books, not new chapters. Yeah. Well, so when you when you think back and you're in a part of this is our this workshop of that we're doing and you've been doing some reflecting, is there a scripture or is there a pointing back to the Bible where we start a story that, you know, has carried you through or that, that, you know, resonates with you now? I mean, the whole story of Jesus is like, you know, the story that basically changed the course of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're mm-hmm. talking about radicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mean, there was the ultimate radical. He was like, uh, yeah. Radical man. Just, I just think the story about, uh, I think it was Matthew, the tax collector, that he was on one of his walks through town and saw him up in a tree and, and just something immediately told him, this is somebody that needs to be with me. And he says, all right, you were having dinner at your house tonight. They, oh, yeah, David preached on that recently. And yes, the guy's yes. like, Hawa? Yeah. He says, get down here. I'm going to your house for yeah. a minute, you know? yeah. The guy's like, well, 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 yeah, okay, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. who does that kind of yeah. thing? Dolly yeah. would do that. Well, you Nelly. Know? You know? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, sizes you up in a second. It's like, yeah. you're like somebody that I think uh, we can work together. Yeah. You know? And the guy's like, what? Me? Yeah. Me? Yeah. You want me? I'm a tax collector. No one likes me. Yeah. Everybody no hates me. I'm that. an outcast. Right. Like, right. I don't care. Yeah. You know? So that radicalness of Jesus. But his intuition and trusting his instincts. And, okay. You know, the fact that he would, you know, as Pastor was saying the last few weeks, like everybody he hung out with an outcast. They were yes. prostitutes. They were tax collectors. They were yes. the poor, you know. Yeah. Didn't, he didn't want to hang with the rich and wealthy. He didn't yeah. feel, he, you know, they were not people that he really trusted. You yeah. Know, he trusted people that, you know, were just honest, hardworking people. Yeah. People, you know? Yeah. 
And they, they were the ones who were following the fishermen, you know. These were not yeah. like, you know, plutocrats and the wealthy, mm-hmm. you know, this day. These were just honest guys who lived paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. day to day, yeah. you know. And they were the ones who saw Jesus for what he was. Yeah. And weren't afraid to follow him, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, to me that, you know, this, this um, honesty of Jesus and, and calling things the way he saw them. He didn't mm-hmm. mind calling uh, the Pharisees hypocrites, you mm-hmm. know. And, mm-hmm. He's uh, authentic, was, yeah. And, and it's ironic that Paul, who probably we wouldn't know who Jesus was if Paul hadn't taken up the cause, mm-hmm. himself was a Pharisee mm-hmm. who had a conversion experience, yeah, yeah. who saw um, the light. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of ironic things that happened in the Bible that were yeah. completely out of, uh, you know, unexpected. But uh, Jesus just was like, if nothing else, just purely authentic. Mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. what he did with authenticity and passion. And that's how you have lived your life, and you have been drawn, obviously, to people who live their lives that way as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it's not an accident that he basically became this, the rock on which this church was built. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, it's lasted, whatever, 2,000-some yeah. years, you know. Yeah, wow. And uh, so... Uh, but I think, you know, as I was saying earlier, we're at a crossroads. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, I, I could go on and on and listen to, to much more. Um, I, I guess my takeaway is, you know, you are, you are authentic. You, li- you, you live an authentic life. And, I mean, just throwing your stuff in a car and going to run I mean, a farm <laughs> in your 70s, is, that's, that's, really, that's really remarkable. And, um, you know, I just, I, I love hearing your stories. I'm glad that you're a part of this uh, storytelling and story capturing workshop because I, I believe our stories are important and we find, we find ourselves in each other's stories. And I think that's what it takes for, to honestly, for change where we're at right now. I believe it, it requires us to share our stories and to listen to other people's stories to understand what, what causes people to act and do the things that they do. And I think we'd, we'd be better We'd be a better people if we if we listened more and we we had the courage to share more our stories. So, well, uh, I want to thank you for being a guest. And be, before we close in prayer, I want to say we are going to follow up and we're going to have a field trip at the Springs Preserve on your totally one of your one of your volunteer well, days. Be, so be, we can be careful what you ask. I know it's so. going to be awesome. We'll pack a lunch and maybe a dinner because there's going to be <laughs> quite. <laughs> You might bring your sleeping bag in there. Okay, because yeah. it's gonna, we got a lot of info. So uh, thank you for sharing uh, your journey with us and your story. And um, we're always happy to see you. I hope it takes a long time to get all this business squared away uh, <laughs> yeah. so you can stay stay, yeah. stay sometime longer, though. Right. I know well, you're passing through, but... Well, my son's going to be here, so I'm going to have him two granddaughters. So I don't expect that... Uh, you know, I'm going to be a stranger, you know. I'll, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, all all right. right. Thank you. Yeah, thank I'm going to close much. us in prayer then. Alrighty, Gra- gracious, do. loving God, we just uh, we just thank you for these stories of Greg's and, and the stories that he's able to share um, of Nellie's and and just for for your stories, the stories in the Bible. Um, Lord, help us find a way to point back to those stories and to find find ourselves in not just those stories but in each other's stories now and uh, help us to to live an authentic life and to uh, live with the radical faith uh, that you uh, showed us. Um, We just thank you for 
Greg's life and just ask that you continue to bless him in all of his journeys and adventures, of which I'm sure there are many more. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.